All right, thanks for staying with me, Cheryl Go on Work It this Wednesday, flying solo today. Well, um, you know, against the backdrop of an increasingly challenging and complex regulatory environment uh, and also economy, a new report has found that organizations in Singapore are doing better than its global counterparts when it comes to ethics and compliance, also known as E and C performance. So, Ethics and Compliance Program Solutions Company, LRN. 10th Annual Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report highlights some of the areas of improvements for organizations in Singapore and also globally. And what are some of the critical differentiators that make some programs more effective than others? So let's unpack this now with Eric Moorhead, Director, Advisory Solutions at LRN and lead author of the Singapore Report. And he's speaking to us all the way from Texas. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's start by talking a bit more about the report and what it looked into with regard to the ethics and compliances in businesses here. Yes, uh, as you mentioned, this is the 10th year for this particular report, the global report. This is actually the inaugural year, the first year for a Singapore-specific readout. Um, And uh, what we found, uh, and what we found generally in APAC region is that uh, there's a higher performance around ethical culture uh, in APAC uh, versus the global uh, benchmark. Uh, and, and Singapore even uh, performs uh, in, in some of these metrics even higher uh, than its uh, uh, than other uh, members of, of, of the APAC region. Um, one of the things we always say at LRM, have always said uh, in the organization that cu- culture really trumps uh, uh, any kind of programming tools or resources. If you have a strong ethical culture, that really is the foundation you can build a successful ethics and compliance program on. Uh, it doesn't mean it's perfect. Uh, and there are some things that we found in the report, uh, some areas of improvement uh, for both uh, organizations in Singapore and globally. Uh, but but uh, Singapore gets a leg up, if you will, uh, because of the strong culture in the area. All right. And uh, we also want to look at the report because it, it found that 90% of organizations surveyed here in Singapore, uh, they reported making some difficult decisions that were consistent with the organization's values in the past year. And so 90% is higher than the global and APEC averages of around 20%. Can you tell us a bit more about what some of these uh, difficult decisions uh, could be? Yeah, I mean, just building on what I what I what I just said about the culture being the basis for this. Um, when you're working from you know a strong set of values, core core beliefs, um, the, the, these can be business decisions you know across the board, and it's kind of hard to draw a bright line as to what is a compliance decision versus a, a business operations decision because sometimes it's both. Uh, some specific uh, situations you can imagine is uh, firing or demoting a high performer. Uh, who's uh, adding to the bottom line of the organization, but is not acting ethically or has been found to in, have engaged in misconduct. So making those kinds of hard choices that may not uh, appear initially to improve the bottom line, but that are made uh, based in values um, is something that uh, you would see. Uh, another specific thing I would point out from the report is uh, the we found that 72% of organizations in Singapore that responded to the to our survey uh, re- reported modifying or abandoning uh, business initiatives, specific uh, business opportunities or business plans 
based on perceived compliance risk. So, uh, you know, uh, jettisoning, jettisoning pe people and opportunities that uh, run afoul of values is, 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 I think, what we're finding in that situation. Okay. And so... Uh, what does this then tell you, Eric, in terms of the corporate governance here? Are we are we a bit harder on in in terms of enforcing such uh, clampdowns on undesirable behavior? Um, I don't know that it's necessarily that that uh, management is harder here, but but the expectations may be higher. I think is the way to look at it, uh, and and that's across the board. Um, now we do see a, a significant difference between. Uh, senior management that is willing to act on values versus uh, middle management. There's a gap there, and we can talk more about that. But that's common to see a gap between uh, what we call, often call tone from the top uh, leadership values and and operational management's uh, enforcement of the same values. There, there's often a lag, and we see that in, sing in the Singapore data as well. That there is a lag between uh, that the high higher percentage of senior managers that are that are that that at least report uh, making these uh, difficult decisions versus those in more operational management level. Okay, um, yeah, we'll come back to those gaps, but for now, we also want to ask you about Singapore organizations um, uh, showing that they've significantly significantly outperformed uh, global and APAC programs in the implementation. Uh, of incentives and also disincentives of ethical behavior. Can you tell us what are some of the factors for consideration here? Yeah, I mean, disincentives are easy to outline, right? That's getting rid of people or demoting them or taking their bonuses. Uh, so so we, we, we kind of naturally know uh, what dis disincentives and discipline looks like. Incentives are harder. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting, even though there are other areas of, of ethics and compliance program development that, that could be more mature in Singapore, is there is a strong uh, um, inclusion of uh, uh, looking at ethical performance and ethical decision making when um, uh, looking at considering behavior and performance management. Uh, so specifically in, in Singapore, 87% of organizations uh, report that they consider ethical decision making and ethical behavior in performance management. So you're being measured on how you, uh, how you, you know, how you make decisions and how you sort of live the values of the organization uh, in your performance management in, in Singapore at a much higher rate than the global uh, figure, which is only 79%. So you know, almost almost 10% higher uh, on average. And so that that shows that uh, that's. I think the primary way that we can show incentives. I mean, there are specific awards or recognition that you can give to somebody, for instance, you know, uh, uh, surfaces an issue or, or reports misconduct, but this is ongoing day in, day out performance. How do you kind of build ethical decision-making into your management process? I, I'm just also a bit curious, Eric, because in, 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 in when it comes to ethics and compliance, usually no news is good news, right? Um, it's um, we we don't highlight things when most of us comply with all the rules uh, with the, the expectations. Um, you know, it, it goes about day to day, and it doesn't really get noticed. It's only when something unfortunate happens that it gets flagged or get called out to management. So, how would a company track a a good? Uh, performance or good behavior in this aspect of ethics and compliance? Because that would be, I would say, 90% of your staff, wouldn't it be? 
Yeah. Well, there are different ways. It's a lot easier to do it with with those that have a management role because you can, for instance, uh, uh, gather data or survey to find out what the perception is of this particular manager with regards to their decision making. Um, you can also, uh, if you have, for instance, training uh, that, that is mandatory, does the does this particular manager uh, promote that training and make sure that all of their reports are engaged in the training that's done uh, in, a, in a sufficient amount of time without being threatened? Uh, and, and do they regularly communicate messages uh, about uh, ethical decision-making? Uh, one thing that's been true for many years, we've been talking about compliance and ethics, I think much more regularly in the last 20 years, but for the last 50 or 60 years, particularly in manufacturing and in other um, industries, uh, we've had, um, uh, you know, man we've expected managers to kind of take on the responsibility for safety. And I think we're seeing the same thing happen with uh, ethics and compliance and ethical decision-making is that you're gonna have that, you know, ethics moment, just like you have a safety moment in, in some organizations. And that's, uh, that, 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 that can be measured. Are they cascading messaging? Are they engaging in the training? Uh, you know, what metrics can you gather about how they're performing in, in, in uh, promoting the program within the organization? All right. Okay. And Eric, we know that um, ENC programs, they generally cover pretty standard issues like bribery, uh, corruption, of course, which are no-nos in, in business. But um, Singapore organizations also place some emphasis on addressing risk controls in some topical areas. Can you tell us a bit more about what these are? Yeah, uh, I think some key ones that are going to be familiar probably to a lot of listeners right now are um, data security um, and uh, privacy. Uh, these regimes, uh, both in Singapore, which has a strong uh, concern about privacy, probably even stronger than uh, here in the United States, in the United States, where kind of laggards um, when it comes to privacy uh, compared to the rest of the world. Uh, so, so those sorts of uh, emerging. Uh, Compliance expectations uh, globally, I, I think, are something that 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 you know get into uh, the data here, and, and yeah. those, and specifically data security, data, mm. data privacy, we see uh, again a percentage uh, higher uh, interest in, in addressing those issues in Singapore versus both APAC and global. Yeah, I think there have been a few uh, high-profile cases where there were data, digital data breaches and um, yeah, management got taken to task because of that. All right. Um, can you tell us then uh, what are some of the hallmarks of an effective uh, ethics and compliance program that most organizations should be looking to emulate? And we talked about a few of these already. Mm. Tone from the top. You know, having uh, the expectation from the, from the senior management leadership of the organization that's visible uh, to everyone in the organization all the way down through you know cascading that messaging through middle through other managers and senior and, and middle managers so that everybody uh, feels like uh, the company uh, cares about ethical decision making and, and, and uh, leading with values um, clear written standards uh, having a code of conduct and and policies that are Understandable mm -hmm. uh, by by um, your your, your uh, stakeholders in your organization. Um, you know, as a lawyer, I, you know, I've seen a lot of policies over the years, and I've written a lot of policies that you know, 20 years ago, I probably would like to rewrite now. Uh, that that would be you know, that really don't communicate to mm -hmm. the average person what 
the risk and the expectations are. Yeah. And so having clear written standards is important. Training and communication, uh, monitoring and measuring the effectiveness of the program, uh, having a, a, an anonymous uh, hotline or whistleblower hotline uh, for people to contact if they can't uh, go through the normal channels of yeah. reporting in the organization. Discipline and incentives, which we've already talked yeah. about. That's a key piece. Yeah. So these are all uh, things that we see growing in Singapore and around the world. Yeah, very good. Because it, it's nice that you mentioned whistleblowing because that's a good segue to our next question, which is um, building up on that speak up culture, especially when we observe that something's not done the right way. Um, is it harder to do in an Asian context when most of us are a little bit more conservative when it comes to um, you know, speaking up about these things. Um, at the same time, with social media, I think it might be an easier way to perhaps uh, air some of these concerns. Uh, so how, how can organizations create a safer space in this regard? Well, um, the, one of the key things to remember is, uh, you know, we, we, we struggled with anonymous reporting lines here in the United States at first, too. Um, and it's also important to remember that we didn't see anonymous uh, whistleblower lines in France, Germany, and some other jurisdictions until just in the last decade or so. So it's expanding around the world. And I see no reason why an anonymous reporting mechanism couldn't work in any um, uh, in any culture, in any place. But the, but the real thing that's really interesting when you look at the data is that people, whether they're in the United States, uh, Europe, or, or, or Singapore, when you ask them who they'd like to report to, it's never an uh, anonymous reporting line. It's it's their manager. It's somebody they trust in HR and management of the organization. So whenever this comes up, I always say, yes, it's important to have an anonymous reporting mechanism, have, have that tool out there uh, when it's needed. But it's not needed as much as let's make sure that our culture is strong and that people are comfortable having these conversations with the people they trust within the organization, because that's the most effective kind of communication about not only uh, observed misconduct and the most serious things, but just asking questions and just you know being able to have a dialogue about what's important uh, when you're talking about ethics and compliance. Okay, so it's um, that, that that human element um, that that is still very important in in you know encouraging uh, people to speak up a little bit more. Yeah. You know, the, the, I think of the, the whistleblower hotline as sort of a failsafe, right? Mm. And it's, 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 an, it's a need to have, but it's, it's, it's not the primary way that you want to have communication about the program. Yeah, that, that's, a good, that's, a, that's definitely some food for thought there um, to any of our uh, managers or higher management who are listening in. Uh, all right. And, and we talked, we're going to come back to those gaps, Eric. Um, so, you know, even as a lot of organizations continuously seek to improve their ethics and compliance programs, there are challenges that abound um, new, new with, with things like your digital AI or social media. Um, what are some of the challenges or gaps that you feel still need to be addressed? Yeah, and this came up specifically in, in our research with, in Singapore, but also globally, mm -hmm. uh, where um, a lot of organizations are struggling to get resources for training, uh, modernizing their training, modernizing their code and written policies, which I already mentioned too, because a lot of the policies, if they were written 10 years ago, they were probably written by a lawyer like me, 
and are very hard to read. Uh, and so, uh, you know, modernizing uh, the way they communicate about uh, uh, about compliance through training, through informal communication, which is often overlooked, which is, um, you know, uh, having touch points uh, with, with people in the organization that's much more informal. And that be, might be something as simple as having a couple of bullet points every quarter that go to uh, managers throughout the organization to have those discussions one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and then also uh, uh, updating those, those uh, codes and policies so that they're, number one, people can find them <laughs> and, 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 and actually use them as, as resources so that they have to be readable and have um, uh, scenarios and, and, and information in there that really pertains to their day-to-day -day work. Because if the code doesn't really pertain to what they're facing every day, then it's not going to be valuable. Yeah, definitely. Uh, lots of in valuable insights there from our guest today on Work It, Eric Moorhead, who is Director Advisory Solu Service Solutions at LRN, and he's also the lead author of the Singapore uh, portion of that report. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us and sharing all these uh, very thoughtful, valuable insights. We appreciate you taking the time to speak to us all the way from Texas.